You are listening to Climate Now. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm James Lawler. And today we will be discussing carbon capture technologies. Yes, that is right. So pulling all of the garbage CO2 that we have spewed into the atmosphere and storing it somewhere or sequestering it. Our guest on this podcast is Howard Herzog, Senior Research Engineer at the MIT Energy Initiative. Howard, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. Pleasure to be here. Wonderful. So we ask all of our guests the same question first. Um, Tell us about your path, your past academic and industrial career. You used to be at Kodak, right? Now, of course, you're at MIT. How did you get where you are? When I graduated uh, school originally, I went into industry. I uh, graduated with a chemical engineering degree, and I uh, worked for a couple companies. First, uh, a big engineering company for a few years. Then I went back to MIT for some graduate work and hooked up with a um, project there that we spun off and became a startup called Aspen Technology, and I worked with them for quite a few years. And eventually, uh, you know, being at a startup is... uh, quite stressful. Uh, the company's actually done very well since, but I decided to uh, come back to MIT when one of my professors I knew there became head of the energy lab in 1989. And I thought I'd go for a few years and then go back to industry, but I never left. And how did you find your way to carbon capture? So when I originally uh, went back to the uh, energy lab to MIT, the head of the lab was very interested in um, geothermal energy. So I did a lot of work in geothermal energy, a lot of industrial energy use. But there was also this researcher at the lab from Japan who who was sort of been at the lab for quite a few years, had contacts in Japan. And he got a request from Japan saying, you know, is it possible to capture uh, CO2 emissions from a power plant? This was back in 1989 and no one had really addressed that question. So we said, okay, we'll do a little project we did a little project and published a paper and that led to another project, another paper, then some work for DOE, we wrote a big research needs assessment. This went on for about 10 years where it started becoming a bigger, bigger part of my portfolio to where it basically took over. It's been that way uh, ever since. 1989. So Howard, you're very modest, but you basically established this entire industry around carbon capture. Is that fair? There were other people around. At that time, uh, we basically all knew each other as a group in the Netherlands. There were people here and there. So I say maybe I was a pioneer, but I won't say, you know, I was the only pioneer. And and when we talk about carbon capture and carbon sequestration, what, what are we talking about exactly? What does that mean? So let me tell you what it originally meant. And then it's really uh, expanded since then. So originally, we were looking at capturing CO2 out of power plants, particularly coal-fired power plants, because 30 years ago, that really dominated the landscape uh, in most of the world, including the United States here. And that was a way you could reduce their emissions. So what you would do is you would take, instead of sending the flue gas up the chimney, you would process it through a a plant that could take the CO2 out of the flue gas. Then you put the carbon-free flue gas up and you take the CO2 and you would you compress it and turn it into a liquid-like thing, and you put it into the deep geologic formations. Actually, back then, in Japan, since they don't have a lot of geologic formations that are amenable to this, they were actually looking at putting it in the ocean. But since then, we realized that the ocean is not the best place to put it, so uh, the real focus has been these deep geological formations. But over time, things have changed. We see in the U.S., coal is not as important, same in Western Europe even though in India and China it is, but it's sort of expanded. We're realizing if we want to get to net zero emissions, 
there's a lot of emissions that are hard to, to get rid of. An industry where a lot of the emissions come from the industrial process itself and not just energy use, carbon capture is sort of a real natural there to take care of that. Also in the production of hydrogen, people are looking at hydrogen for different parts of the energy economy where electricity can't get to. Uh, you can make it from electricity, but that's expensive. It's a lot cheaper making it from natural gas and capturing the uh, CO2. And finally, just a few years ago, when uh, the uh, IPCC put out their big report on uh, trying to hit the 1.5 degrees C target, they realized, well, we're going to overshoot. You know, maybe we're going to need to take it out of the air. And carbon capture and storage is a good way to take it out of the air. People are working at machines that actually process air and grab it out of the air. That's difficult because it's such low concentrations. But the other way you can do it is you can take trees, which take the CO2 out of the air, burn them in a power plant, create electricity, capture the CO2 from that power plant, similarly what we want to do with coal-fired power plants, put it in the ground, and then that effect is taken out of the air, put it in the ground, you get a little electricity as a bonus. Could you chart the landscape for us in terms of carbon capture technologies? You, you've already mentioned a couple, but what are the different options out there right now, and which ones do you think are going to be the most effective in removing CO2 from the atmosphere? First, let me say there's a wide range of carbon emissions. Some plants like an ammonia plant or an ethanol plant will put out pretty pure CO2. A cement plant may be CO2 with 30% CO2 in the uh, flue gas. Coal-fired power plant may be 10 to 15%, natural gas 5%. To take it out of the air, you know, you're talking about 0.04%. So each of those may have different capture methods. But the one primary method today is what we call a, a scrubbing. It could be either chemical or physical scrubbing, depending on the concentration. But say from a power plant, you would put it into a big tower and you would contact it with a, a solvent. The solvents used today are what's called amine type compounds. Ammonia is in that same category. They're basically weak bases, CO2 is a weak acid. So you have a reaction where the CO2 will be grabbed from the air to react with the base and go into the solvent. Then you have a second power where you release it, usually by elevating the temperature, sometimes by reducing the pressure, sometimes a little more complex. And then you re recycle the solvent and you have the CO2 where you can now compress it, put it in a pipeline and uh, take it to where you need to either store it. And some people are trying to use it, but once again, utilization is difficult. So that's the, the main way to go. People are looking at other ways to do it. Your separation from the flue gas is because you have a lot of nitrogen in there. That nitrogen comes in because you're using air for combustion. Well, if you take the nitrogen out of the air, which you do at a air separation plant that produces oxygen, you can then burn it in fairly pure oxygen and uh, have a very easy separation at the end. That's called oxy-fired combustion. Also, doing it out of the exhaust gas, which is called post-combustion capture. People are looking at membranes, for instance, uh, to do that. And there's a lot of other methods being looked at, but those are, are the main ones that we uh, see today. So how pervasive are these technologies in our energy economy today, and, and what is their potential for removing CO2 emissions? The carbon capture technology that you put, that you capture before it goes into the atmosphere, that's really aimed at what we, what we call large stationary sources. So these are power plants. These are plants that say produce hydrogen. These are industrial plants. 
And I don't have a definitive number off the top of my head. Maybe 20 to 30% of our emissions come out from there. I, I think it's be, even though people look at it, I, I personally feel uh, trying to capture it off, say, an automobile doesn't really make sense or, or even a, an individual household. So you, you got that 20 to 30% there. But then let's take a look at airplanes. So uh, how do you decarbonize an airplane? Well, first of all, it uses jet fuel and the airplane's really been optimized on the jet fuel and uh, for safety as well as other reasons. It's very difficult to get it off there. And if you do, it could be very expensive. So what if we just let it burn the jet fuel and we offset it? And that's where those negative emissions come in. And you can do that say with the bioenergy at a CCS plant. We've actually done some modeling and you know, theoretically, we think by 2100, you can maybe get 20 billion tons a year that way. So that's a big number. Whether that actually comes to fruition, we're not sure. Now, 20 billion tons is equivalent to about half, it's actually over half the greenhouse gases we put out, not just the, the CO2, but the CO2 equivalent of the non-energy sources. And, and when you say we could get to 20 billion tons, do you mean that we can reduce our emissions by that amount or, or that we can pull 20 billion tons out of the atmosphere? I'm sorry, I didn't quite follow. Through what we model was bioenergy with CCS. So I said before, combusting trees and power plants. And we think that number, whether you can actually get there or not, the models, you know, given what we put into it, say, yes, we have enough, we'd have enough land for the trees, you know, we, we'd have enough storage for the CO2 to do this, and, and it would be economical to do that as opposed to, say, taking it off of airplanes or other parts of the economy, you know, especially a lot of the agriculture economy. And it's very hard in any sector, even the electricity sector, to get to absolute zero. So, you know, that last 10% becomes very expensive. So this, this is a way to offset it. That, that, that's a potential pathway. Once again, these are scenarios, not predictions that we run. So it really depends on many, many things going forward. But the potential is there for it to play a very, very major role. Where do you feel like the academic conversation is really is really taking place in this topic? Is there a journal or, or like a conference? Where are these conversations happening? Internationally, a couple things go on. One, there's there's a program called the uh, IEA Greenhouse Gas R&D Program. This is run out of the UK. It's a um, it's an implementing agreement uh, out of the, the International Energy Agency, and they run big conferences every two years. And there's proceedings. And they also started a journal maybe uh, a dozen years ago called the International Journal of Greenhouse Gas Control. And so that has it. But a lot of journals now are publishing papers on, on carbon capture and storage. But, but the original one that really focused on it and is still you know 100% on it is the International Journal of Greenhouse Gas Control. Given your long experience with the field, it, you know, being one of its pioneers, how have you seen the field change? Especially now as we're seeing things heat up, how have conversations around carbon capture evolved and are they having an impact? Well, a couple of things. You know, when I first started this and told people what I'm working on, they say, what's that? I never heard of it. And that's changed. Elon Musk says he's going to do a $100 million prize on uh, carbon capture. We're not quite sure exactly what he means, but, you know, it's so its visibility is raised. And uh, people saying carbon capture may mean a lot of different things to people, but it's good that people know what it is now. It's being run out of the coal program at uh 
DOE originally was, and I think it still is. But when I first started, we did a research needs assessment that I think it came out in 1992. This was done by a different division of DOE, but then, you know, we presented the head of the coal program and he just laughed. That's never going to happen. And now, you know, if you look at the coal program, the research program, it's all on carbon capture and storage. And, you know, it's gone a little beyond coal. And, and I think what's happened and the interest really, you know, starting in the 90s, it was a constant growth of interest and it peaked in 2010. And then it went down. It went down for, uh, you know, half a dozen years. Uh, it went down for a couple of reasons. One, the climate policy internationally fell apart after uh, they tried to put together the Copenhagen Accord, and that wasn't resurrected until Paris came in. And in the U.S., you know, people thought in the Obama administration, we're going to have some sort of climate policy. They focused on health care and never had any, you know, political capital to put through climate. And industry sort of said, okay, this is uncertain, and a lot of industry pulled back. In the last three or four years, the interest has started growing as people see we can't avoid climate anymore. And even, you know, even under the Trump administration, which I would say is not very friendly to uh, climate research, uh, the interest grew because private companies realized they had to do it, whether through, you know, shareholder movements, uh, multinational companies work more than just the United States and the other countries are uh, demanding that they do things. So the interest has grown again. And, and I think what, what people realize, you know, people are setting these targets now for net zero. That's the, um, the real byword these days. And they don't see how you can get to net zero without at least some carbon capture and storage. How much and exactly how is to be determined and whether we actually hit net zero in those time schemes is still pretty ambitious. But that's the reason for uh, the renewed interest. Something you just mentioned, Howard, so was the difference between zero and net zero. This is a very important distinction. Do you think you could elaborate on that difference? When you look at the carbon balance on the planet, there's inputs and outputs. So some of the outputs these days include carbon being CO2 being uptake by the ocean and some in, in forests and soils. And so what ends up in the atmosphere is a difference between what we put in through our smokestacks and other greenhouse gases and what nature takes out. To stop the CO2 emissions from increasing the atmosphere, what we put into the atmosphere has to be offset by what's going out. That means that that is a net zero. Absolute zero means we put nothing into the atmosphere which is really harder and much more expensive. You try to get the last drop out, like, like I just had made tuna sandwich yesterday with a squeezed mayonnaise bottle. Getting that last drop out of mayonnaise of that bottle isn't so easy. <laughs> in fact, well, some of it went in the garbage. So it's, it's the same way here in the economy. Now, these negative emissions I talk about, so nature gives us some negative emissions, but they're limited. So these negative emissions I talk about are man-made. So that lets us put out more emissions to offset by man-made negative emissions to get to net zero. So, so that's the calculus that's going on. Can we talk about direct air capture? I know there are some variations on that technology. I mean, what are the variations and, and how are they different? How do they work? So the way it works is very similar to what it does at a power plant where you have the two-step process of a solvent absorbing the CO2 and then regenerating the solvent and releasing the CO2. The big difference is the concentration in the air is about one three hundredth 
of that of a, say, a coal-fired power plant. So that has a bunch of implications. One is it's going to take a lot more energy to release the CO2. And secondly, you're going to need a lot bigger absorbers uh, because to get the same amount of CO2 out of the air versus a coal-fired power plant, you'd have to process 300 times as much air. And that means you have very big machines. So all this adds to uh, cost, of course. Now, there's two methods that they do it. One is they use a means, but unlike the power plant, which is a means in a liquid, this is a, a means on a solid substrate. So it's like a filter pack that you pass the air through and it grabs the CO2. Then you have to heat the um, filter pack up and you actually have to put it under vacuum and pump off the CO2. So that's one method. And that method is uh, a company called Climeworks does that. And they actually have operating units, uh, mostly uh, in Europe. The other method that's only in a pilot plant at this point is from a company called Carbon Engineering, where they use uh, a liquid sorbent like we do at, at the power plants. But instead of using a means, they use potassium hydroxide. And, and the reason they do that is it's a much stronger base, and therefore it's easier for it to grab the uh, CO2 out of the air than the amines. The problem with that, though, is since it, it grabs, it's easier to grab the CO2, it's also more difficult to remove the CO2. So their processing to regenerate the solvent is much more expensive. Now, you can buy negative emissions today from Climeworks, go to their website, and the cost is $1,100 a ton of CO2. That's pretty high. They think they can get the costs down uh, as they move forward, but that's the, well, that's the selling price today if you, if you wanted to do it. Wow, $1,100 per ton. So that's quite expensive. And, and what about carbon engineering? I know they're another company working on direct air capture. What is your analysis uh, of their work to the extent you, you know about it? So carbon engineering think it can do it for between one and $300 a ton of CO2. I've done a lot of analysis. I don't think those numbers are credible, at least not any in the, in the near future. I, you know, people ask me what the range will be in 2030. I give them a range of 600 to $1,000 a ton of CO2. And by that, I mean, it's got to be net CO2. So if you use energy that releases CO2, you know, you got to subtract that from what you capture from the air. So uh, you pretty much need to use carbon-free energy to drive these machines. And, and, I, and I was going to say, let me, let me give you an example. If we're going to do a billion tons a year in the U.S., so a billion tons of CO2 a year is about uh, less than 20% of what we put out totally, that will require three times the amount of all our wind and solar energy we produce today. Right, to power those facilities. To power those facilities, and that's for just... 20%, less than 20% of our emissions. So you can see the scaling up numbers are pretty daunting. And how much land mass would this require? I know there's also an extensive geographic footprint associated with, with the technology. Do you, do you recall what that footprint would be to pull out 1 billion tons? Well, I don't know about the billion. Let me go to a million tons. So that's a lot smaller. So let me, I told you, you have to have these absorbers. So carbon engineering to do a million tons needs an absorber with 46,000 square meters of cross-sectional area. So look at that as the front of a building. So this is like a building three stories high and nearly five miles long. That's to do a million tons. And But what they're gonna have to do, of course, is spread it out. 
So you, you divide it into different contactors, but just like a wind farm that has many windmills, you got to spread them out. So in a wind farm, you don't want to be in a wind shadow. Here, you don't want to be sucking in carbon, the CO2 depleted air from another contactor. So I don't have the exact number of how much land area uh, this will be. There haven't been any definitive studies on that yet. So it's a daunting chance. But, yeah. but let me say this, even at $600 to $1,000 a ton CO2, this still may be cheaper than getting the jet fuel off the airplane. Sorry, can you explain what you mean? If you want to have carbon-free air, you know, air transport, the cost of that mitigation may cost you, will probably cost you more than $1,000 a ton of CO2. I, I will say we've done work on bioenergy with uh, carbon capture and storage, and we think those numbers are quite a bit cheaper, more around the $200 per ton of CO2 range. And how, do, how does that work? You need to have, the, the key there is having a supply of good biomass. It could be woody biomass, uh, trees. It could be uh, herbaceous biomass, which are grasses. You probably want to have crops that grow flat, fast. So you're, you're going, if you're doing it on a large scale, you need energy crops. So you got to make sure that your biomass growth is sustainable, that you're not hurting biodiversity, that, that you're making sure you have regrowth in the forest. So all of that, but if you have that, that biomass supply chain, then it's just a matter of taking the biomass to a power plant. You probably pelletize it and, and, and then it looks just like a regular coal fire power plant. And then it, you put the carbon capture on the smokestack. That's pretty simple. There's a, in the UK, there's a big biomass power plant called Drax. Right now, I think it's about 2.6 gigawatts of power and they have a third unit that can convert to make it even more. And they're actually uh, piloting some carbon capture and storage on there. And they have plans to make that, that all the emissions will be captured in the future. So that they're sort of the leaders in that right now. So what about the cost? Is there a business model for retrofitting coal plants and turning them into bioenergy plants that incorporate carbon capture technology? Has that been modeled? I mean, is it a viable business? Well, Drax is doing it, and you know, and they're they're going to want to expand beyond what they're what they're doing. But it, it comes back to the, the the Achilles' heel of carbon capture and storage is it's always cheaper to put it in the atmosphere than to uh, use carbon capture and storage and keep it out of the atmosphere. And so, unless there's incentives, which has to be created through climate policy, people aren't going to do it. And in the United States. We have a few incentives, but they're not big enough. And uh, in the UK, they had more incentives, and that's why they did it there. That's what it's going to take. It's going to take policy. And, you know, it's going to take policy to get to net zero. It's not going to happen by not doing it because, you know, the cheapest thing, you know, fossil fuels are so cheap, they're not going to go away unless you say, okay, they're cheap because we're not accounting for the uh, emissions to the atmosphere and the damages that do. Once we account for those damages and put that into policy and monetize it, then I think you'll see a lot of things changing. So on the policy front, I'm wondering, to what degree do you think we're going to see meaningful change with regard to incentivizing some of these carbon capture technologies in this new Biden administration? Do you, do you have any views on that? I think we'll see some. I mean, actually, in the big omnibus bill that was passed at the end of the last administration, there were some some things for carbon capture and storage. You know, it, we see things for CCS along with renewables and nuclear and, and, and everything. Whether you're going to get climate policy through Congress, you know, I'm not a political scientist. Your, your guess is as good as mine, but the initial tea leaves 
don't look very good. <laughs> you know, something, something that I think would help not just carbon capture storage, but climate in general is a, a uh, economy-wide carbon price, which is usually the, the, the most efficient and, and cost-effective way. And then because it's an emerging technology, you'll still need help with R&D and getting it over the initial hurdle, a first mover type facilities to demonstrate before it can move on. And, and when you say these first mover facilities, just to be clear, you're, you're really talking about biomass powered power plants, which incorporate carbon sequestration technology. You're not talking about direct air capture because that seems too far out there. Or how would you describe it? Forgetting about the cost, it would apply to that also. Now, actually, what's happening with, it's interesting what's happening with the direct air capture field. A lot of companies that want to offset their emissions are helping fund them at this point. So that's really where their main funding is coming from, not from government and not from selling their uh, negative emissions, but from companies, uh, especially high-tech companies, wanting to do it. They want to see, will this work? You know, eventually it will come down to price and whether they're, they can afford to pay it. That's what's uh, uh, driving a lot of this that we see now. So it's just private companies who want to reduce emissions and are buying negative emissions. Well, they're not even buying the negative emissions so much because they're not really generating them. They're investing in the company to see if the technology can get there so they oh. can buy them. And, oh, I see. I mean, and there's some government money also involved, but it's interesting, you know, you see the whole high-tech industry saying we want to be carbon neutral, and not only that, we want to go back and be carbon neutral since our founding. And they see this as a way forward, and they see investing in the company. You know, if these high-tech companies put a few million dollars here, a few million dollars there, there's no skin off their teeth. Yeah. When you say high-tech companies, you're talking about venture capital, right? No. Like, or what do you, who are you talking about? Microsoft. Okay. That. Okay, right. So Stripe and I don't know. I don't know what companies have put money in, but these are the companies that are, you know, these are the ones that are doing it. There may be some venture capital in there. So let me just try to wrap my head around this. It so it seems that from what you're saying, the cheapest option would be to sequester the carbon dioxide as it's being produced through a biomass power plant, because that's something that you could retrofit for a few hundred dollars per ton of CO2 sequestered. Whereas direct air capture is $1,100 a ton. But in either scenario, when you multiply that, we're talking huge amounts of capital expenditure, right? What's the story that direct air capture companies are selling to convince high-tech investors that this is a good place to put their money? Well, one thing they're selling is they can get the price down to the one $300 range. And how do you do that? You know, I looked at some of their models. I, you know, A lot of it I don't have access to. But I don't find it. I don't find it credible. But you know, it's very easy to predict a price in the future. You know, and then when you start really doing it, you'll see what it really is. And there, there's so many companies that say we're going to do it for this price and don't. So you know, and it's also very seductive. It doesn't have a lot of negative impact. So so biomass is very controversial in the uh, environmental community, you know, whether it's a good thing to use for climate change for a number of reasons, you know, some people will say we can do this sustainably, others say you can't. There is a problem, if you don't capture the emissions, one problem is 
if you burn the biomass today and say it's carbon neutral, well, you're really putting CO2 in the atmosphere today and it's gonna take you decades for it to come back. We don't have that problem if you use carbon capture. It may take decades for you to generate all the negative emissions, but, but that's a, a different story. People worry about competition and land for food with biomass. Our modeling says, because you're gonna see increase of productivity, both food crops and energy crops, that we should have plenty of land to do both and not really impact significantly the, uh, the price of food. So we really need to, to get these things out there and get real facts out there so people can see it. You know, at this point, people see the need. If I have a machine, you know, that sucks the CO2 out of the air and I don't have to worry about other parts so much, it's very seductive. But you have to worry about the other parts, right? And I will say most people in the uh, direct air community say it's not a substitute for really ratcheting down our emissions. So we're really talking about this thing. We're really talking about negative emissions offsetting the last 10, 20 percent uh, to get to net zero. That there's the first 80 percent or so, there's a lot we could do, including more traditional carbon capture and storage. So, Howard, I'd like to ask you about the energy initiative. What are some of the projects that you're working on in this group that you're really excited about? One, I'm working with our economists and these big energy economic models that uh, go out to 2100 that people use for policy really don't have carbon capture uh, presented well, especially in all the forms I talked about. So we're really trying to get that in there well and really understand different scenarios and where the possibilities are going forward. So what we're going to do based on our analysis there of the bioenergy and CCS paper, we're going to have a symposium this spring to try to address some of the, the issues we talked about on you know, how we can move this forward and, and what the pluses and minuses are and get a dialogue going on that. One thing that's a challenge for carbon capture and storage is that in the electricity sector, these days, you have a lot of renewables, and that's really put a lot of pressure on other types of power plants because they have to sort of fill in for the renewables. So they have to start up and shut down a lot. They have to uh, ramp up and ramp down, but they're necessary for storage and, and to keep the lights on. And a lot of those are done with natural gas. And the question is, how can we uh, do this and have carbon capture and storage on those plants? Because it makes it much more difficult to put on. So RPE has a um, new program they just launched and it's just getting set in place right now. You know, the, the, the winners have been chosen and putting the contracts in place. Now we have one of those contracts trying to develop a, a flexible CCS technology. And we're working with a company called Eight Rivers Capital out of uh, North Carolina. And they have uh, some proprietary uh, processes that we're putting together to try to, to do this. And what program is that? There, you know, the DARPA program in the Defense Department that, that did a lot of uh, technology development, they put one in the Department of Energy called RPE. And the, the dash E stands for energy. So this, this is a program to uh, take technologies and uh, really try to accelerate them and get them ready for the marketplace. And so we, we have one of these awards that we're gonna develop, move this technology forward on. Is that one of the types of technology we've discussed already? It's a little different. Can you say anything about that or is that confidential? I'm not sure exactly what I can say. We, we put, there is something, well, 
for this program, there's a one-page synopsis of all the um, different technologies, and that's going to be on the RPE website. I don't know if it's on there yet, but because uh, I know I have approved something for that a month or two ago. Got it. So I understand you aren't allowed to say too much, but is it possible to give us just a sort of a general overview? We're not using the traditional amine type of uh, sorbent here. So we're, we're actually using um, carbonates, hydroxides and carbonates. But we're using it in a manner that, that we think uh, there are certain parts of the process that make up for some of the uh, cost of the regeneration of it. That, that's in general a problem. So, we, so there's different twists there that I can't speak about at this point. But, but basically, the sorbent we're using is um, doing a calcium oxide, calcium carbonate cycle. Is that similar to mineralization? Yes. I mean, that's the same things that are used in mineralization, but we're not, our end product is not the minerals itself. Last question, Howard. Um, so if you were an investor right now with a large checkbook who's looking to advance technologies in the carbon capture and sequestration sector, where would you put those dollars? Well, that's why I'm a researcher. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what if we ask the question in the negative, um, where would you not put those dollars? I mean, I, I, I personally would not invest in a, in a direct air capture company. Uh, I, do, I do like, I mean, I do think some of the biomass solutions um, uh, look pretty good, but let me, let, me, let me answer the question another way. I, I'm the executive director of a, of a carbon capture utilization and storage center at uh, the Energy Initiative. And we ran an internal solicitation at MIT and we got about 20 different ideas on new ideas on what to do. And the one that won and we funded was actually making hydrogen from methane via pyrolysis. So, so the way that you would make hydrogen from methane now is you do what's called steam methane reforming. You, you react it with uh, um, water you end up with basically hydrogen and CO2, separate out the CO2 and you have the hydrogen. What um, pyrolysis does is just takes the methane and breaks the bonds into carbon and hydrogen. And it has some, some um, you know, it has some uh, advantages, especially in cost eventually, but you also have the problem of this solid carbon that you're making, which is a real pain to deal with. And there's ways to deal with it. Basically, um, the way we, the way that uh, we're dealing with it, is uh, you basically put it in a um, liquid metal bath, and uh, that does it. But this is very high temperature, so that's that's some of the the the, the early stage research we're doing. And you know, we're not the only one looking at methane pyrolysis. It's you know, um, we some of our. Uh, other companies at the energy issue we talked to, and they they were interested in this prior to that. So it's it's something that's been out there. So there's a lot of you know that's at a very um, early stage. So I mean there's there's a lot of investment opportunities, but I I can't tell you uh, which is the best and which I would put my money in <laughs> right now. You know once again it's it also are you in for the long term or the short term? Certain things can be done fast, and you see the policies coming into it. So you know. You see the U.S. being a big push on electric cars right now. So, you know, if the government's starting to put a lot of money in there, well, there's going to be opportunities there for that. Excellent. Thank you so much, Howard. It was a wonderful conversation. Really appreciate your time. It's fantastic to be able to explore these topics. Yes. Thank you so much, Howard. You're welcome. 
Howard Herzog from MIT's Energy Initiative. That is it for this episode of the Climate Now podcast. You can check out our other interviews, watch our videos, and sign up for our newsletter at climatenow.com. And if you want to get in touch, email us at contact at climatenow.com or tweet at us at we are climate now. We hope you'll join us for our next conversation.